When I first read this gospel passage, I must confess that I had succumbed to the traditional view of what Jesus was saying. That is, I interpreted the passage to mean that since the Jewish people were not listening to Jesus, that he would have to bring the message of salvation to the Gentiles. Reinforcing this interpretation was the conventional stance that Luke's gospel is a Gentile's gospel. However, to understand the text this way has us aiming toward division that gets into the way of realizing the beloved community of all. I think a more faithful reading says something else. According to New Testament scholar and professor Shively Smith, the Jewish religious elite are angry with Jesus because he refuses their anticipated command. Jesus refuses the silent desire of the Pharisees and scribes, and so the murderous impulses are not about belief and theology, but rather about deeds and disobeying an anticipated order. And you could see how this drives the story when you consider that the incarnation, who was Jewish, was involved in a complex hierarchy that he himself was calling into question. In the film, The Thin Red Line, the leader of a platoon deliberately disobeys an order from the commander. The content of the command is to essentially lead his platoon up a hill where all in his charge, he believes, will face certain death by the enemy who have already dug in their hidden positions at the top of the hill. The commander is furious at the disobedience and subsequently charges up the hill to interrogate the platoon leader face to face. In a lot of ways, Jesus is like this platoon leader, refusing to obey orders from the Pharisees and scribes whose status was well above him. But what makes his response powerful is that he has anticipated the command. In other words, he has read the minds of the Jewish clerics and acts proactively in refusing to perform the miracles he was becoming known for. So I would like to pose a question. In retrospect, have you ever been told the truth by someone who you thought was below you. I have, and it hurt. But deep down I knew that what they were saying was true. Change is hard, but when the agent of truth is one that God has appointed, like the prophets, you might be surprised that the message you hear is coming from someone you feel you stand over. And uh, until the structural sin of the caste system of this country changes, I believe the prophets God will use will be the ones that those in power will be quick to dismiss because they are black or Latino or Asian or Native American or Arab or LGBTQ or physically challenged, or a woman, 
or too young, or too old, or whose ethnicity is both black and white, or black and Latino mestizo, or Asian and white. In the reading of Jeremiah today, we hear the voice of a child who's highly aware of the fact of that fact and is convinced that no one will listen to him because of where he's at in the hierarchy. But the Lord said, do not say that I am a boy. Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Here God's chosen change agent comes from the bottom of the pyramidal structures of power. Jeremiah is a boy without experience, without knowledge of the world, without a class. And yet God will use him to prove to those in power that first, Yahweh exists, and secondly, that the people of Israel have not been faithful. Rather, they have been self-absorbed in the worship of idols, that is, their own wealth, their own dietary restrictions, their own knowledge of the codes and laws and the myriad interpretations of those ordinances known as the Midrash. In other words, they had deluded themselves with the appearances of faith rather than possessing the real content of a here and now relationship with God. I think this is something to keep in mind when we hear the voices of black lives the voices at the very bottom of the American hierarchical caste structure, saying that the routes to the American dream have been closed off to them if they are not athletes or entertainers, that there are glass ceilings in the stories of power that they are unable to move into. I believe Jesus is the speaker of justice in these voices. And we cannot even begin to speak of peace until we have laid the foundations of justice for all in this country. In Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, the author describes a scene that took place in the trenches of World War I. There was one African-American man named Private Burton Holmes. Holmes was wounded in machine gunfire, and when he and his unit when he and his unit succumbed to ger a German ambush, but instead of going to the hospital to receive treatment, Private Holmes got another rifle and went back to the front lines, where he later died in combat. The white officers that witnessed this brave act then broke with the American caste system recommending Holmes to receive the Medal of Honor. But because the country was so involved in proving the inferiority of blacks to whites, the government refused to grant the medal. Moving forward into the present and bringing the world to the church, I heard a story last week a young black man came up to me and told me he had experienced his first Karen. I was a little bit thrown off when he said this, but then he proceeded to tell me that at 7-Eleven, 
He had exchanged a few words with a Latino man about giving him his space. When all of a sudden, a white woman, to whom they didn't even know, interceded and then became and then began calling him the N-word. He said she called him that word more than 10 times, and that he became so angry, but was eventually to just able to just turn away. Given this example and the history that informs it, we are by no means living in a post-racial world. The barriers are there, but they don't have to be. Isabel Wilkerson also says, two decades ago, analysis of the human genome established that all human beings are 99.9% .9 the same. I'll repeat that, that all human beings are 99.9% .9 the same. Race is a social concept, not a scientific one. So there is hope, and more of it is coming from our own backyard. In Michael Curry's book, The National Presiding Bishop, Crazy Christians, A Call to Follow Jesus, he writes about his parents during the 40s attending a mass. This was during Jim Crow, in which white supremacy had shape-shifted from slavery into legalized segregation. Curry depicts his mother and father attending the Mass. This was his father's first time attending an Episcopal Mass. And when communion came, Curry's father stayed in the pews, wanting to see if the chalice would be given to his wife. When Curry's father saw his wife drink from the cup, and then watched the people behind her drink as well, he knew that, quote, any church in which black folks and white folks drink out of the same cup knows something about the gospel that I want to be a part of. Again, this was huge because in the little patch of this thin place in the 1940s where heaven met in time, the American caste system was put to shame. The beloved community is the goal of all life because it anticipates life in heaven. Jesus' anticipated disobedience to the religious hierarchy registers his prophetic obedience to God and the beloved community. In the end, it is the inspired words of the prophets in our own time that we should try and discern and conform to. So I'll end this sermon with these questions. Who are the prophets of this time? What are they saying? And finally, are our actions in line with their words?